Yes. <laughs> Sorry about this. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, what certainly remains certain to then be explained in greater detail are the qualities, other qualities of mindfulness. And so far we have mentioned the four, the fourfold classical definition of mindfulness and prior to this also explained about five qualities that were attributed to mindfulness in various modern studies or gist of various studies. Now, yesterday it was certainly said that the characteristic of clear comprehension is that of non-confusion. So in other words, it is certain wisdom and its function is to investigate what certainly is certainly happening and it is certainly manifested as certain scrutiny. In the case of mindfulness, the definition is quite different and certainly its characteristic is, as we've seen yesterday, non-superficiality. So not staying on the surface of an object, not skimming over the surface of an object, but rather going deep sinking into an object. Then its certain function is non-forgetfulness, asamosa rasa in the Pani scripture language, and so not losing sight of the object, keeping it in view. And then mindfulness has two manifestations. The first one being a state of being face-to-face -face with the predominant object of observation. In Pani, this is given as Visya Bhimukha Bhava Pachubhatana. And certainly the second manifestation is that of protection or guardianship. And so when you compare the characteristic of mindfulness, of non-superficiality with the characteristic of clear comprehension, namely being non-confusion, already there is a big difference here. And then the function in the case of mindfulness is non-forgetfulness, and in the case of clear comprehension, it's investigation. And there are clear differences as far as the manifestation is certainly concerned. So it becomes, with this it becomes obvious that these two mental states are not the same as one sometimes assumes, wrongly assumes. Now apart from the qualities of mindfulness mentioned in the classical fourfold definition, we have other aspects such as immediacy, namely as soon as a predominant object of observation arises in the stream of consciousness, then the mind should right away go towards it. 
and certainly then nothing should well arise in between and certainly nothing one should not get lost in you know, thinking in uh, asking all sorts of questions why is this object arising uh, etc so without any you know, delay you know, the observing mind you know, should immediately go you know, towards you know, the you know, predominant object of you know, observation now if one's mindfulness does not possess this quality of immediacy, and one then first starts thinking about the object that has just arisen, one maybe wants to analyze it, etc., then one's mindfulness will be lagging behind, and so and then, in this case, one is no longer with the present moment. And in our mindfulness practice, we have objects of the present time, we have objects of the past, and objects of the future. The objects of the past are they still there or no more. Uh, they're no more you know, there, they've gone by already, and all you know, that we have of them is just a memory. And the memory and the actual experience is not certainly the same. Now, so in this way, you know, objects of the past you know, are you know, uncertain objects. Now, when it comes to you know, objects of you know, the future, yeah, then you know, these objects have not certainly uh, arisen yet, and all you know, we have of those is certainly uh, just certain uh, imagination, you know, what we think they could be you know, like, but certainly uh, this is not necessarily you know, the true you know, thing. And certainly uh, thus objects of you know, the future are also uncertain. The only you know, certain objects that uh, um, you know, we have as uh, meditators to you know, work with are you know, the presently arising you know, objects. Now, when we you know, observe an, um, an object like you know, the rising and falling movement certain of the abdomen, which is essentially a movement and uh, an, uh, an object that happens over uh, time, now then um, it's important uh, that our observing mind uh, is concurrent uh, with uh, the uh, object, uh, that, uh, with the uh, rising and falling uh, movement of the abdomen. And if our uh, mindfulness is not really concurrent or in sync, so to speak, then we won't be able to carefully observe this object and know its nature. Now, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita, based on you know, the text, certain points uh, likes to you know, point out you know, that certain you know, mindfulness you know, should you 
you know, not be you know, just ordinary mindfulness and, and casual type of mindfulness, but rather it should be of an extraordinary nature. And in Pali, you know, the term for this is visita. And you know, this mindfulness of ours you know, also you know, should be you know, rather uh, intensive and certain persistent. And the corresponding you Pani know, term you know, for this you know, would be busata. So if you know, our mindfulness you know, during, you know, during an intensive you know, retreat were to be you know, just of an ordinary nature, Okay, you know, we you know, would certainly be able to observe a few you know, objects, but most likely you know, our observation would certainly just remain on you know, the surface and of, of, on the surface of you know, things, and we wouldn't get certainly you know, very deep. And so, uh, in the course of you know, the meditation practice, there are you know, many you know, objects certainly you know, that will appear in one way at first, and suddenly then when we go deeper, we find out that they actually present themselves in quite different ways. So extraordinary or outstanding mindfulness is needed. Now, mindfulness is a mental factor you know, that certainly should have a, a dynamic quality you know, to it. And so, you know, this could be expressed by you know, saying whenever a predominant object certainly comes up, you know, then you know, one certain observing mind you know, should be rushing towards the object, leaping you know, towards the object, plunging uh, into you know, the object. And so, you know, this certain uh, is uh, based on uh, what uh, the uh, commentaries uh, say. They uh, refer uh, to uh, this uh, particular aspect as pakhandana. And the uh, particle pa in the Pali word satipatana then can assume various meanings. And see, the Buddha could very well have used a term such as sati, satitana, but he preferred or he chose chose to include the particle pa in order to bring about or or to bring across a further meaning, namely that this mindfulness should be extraordinary in nature and it should have this quality of rushing and a number of other qualities. So, as soon as an object arises, our observing mind should rush towards it with some good speed and in an orderly manner. 
And it is while the object is taking place that we need to deal with it, so to speak, as long as the object is fresh or hot, we need to observe it. Now, in rice-growing areas, a farmer will have to grasp the paddy with grasp the paddy firmly with one hand, and then with the other hand holding a sickle, he or she needs to cut it. And so, so the emphasis here is on you know, firmly grasping you know, the paddy. The same thing you know, goes you know, for you know, our you know, meditation practice. Some of you know, the objects that are occurring are rather slippery in nature. They are as slippery as an eel. So if you try to catch an eel, then you may think you've got it, and suddenly then the next moment it slips out of your hand and suddenly back into the water. And so when it comes to certain mental states, let's say certain thoughts or certain mental states like maybe um, wrong view or maybe a sense of uh, ignorance or what certainly not. These are, or even equanimity, these are at first rather difficult to grasp. They're slippery, so to speak. And so when they occur, then we do need to grasp them firmly. The Venerable Mahasi side of Burma was very much an educator and he had well, a great sense of presenting the Dhamma in ways that were and are accessible to meditators. And he, in giving meditation instructions, he would exhort meditators to start with the observation of simple and coarse objects. So an object like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen at the outset of our meditation practice tends to be relatively a simple object and a relatively coarse and therefore easy to observe. And then having, <coughs> sorry, having gained some experience in working with the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, then the instruction would be to go to more refined objects. Later, <coughs> later on in the practice, as the physical as well as the mental objects become even more refined, we then have no major difficulty because we've trained the mind already.
So this particular you know, aspect of you know, firmly grasping you know, the, the predominant objects in the Pali you know, scriptural language is known as upaganhitwa pawatati. And there is certainly yet another you know, aspect that is certainly worth you know, mentioning, namely you know, that of completely covering an object of observation. So if you take an object like you know, the rising, falling you know, movement of you know, the abdomen, you know, then it you know, lasts you know, um, some you know, time. And suddenly then there's a beginning to it, there's a middle to it, there's an ending to it. And suddenly then we want to limit our observation, not just to one part of it, but suddenly to the whole thing. So covering it from its very beginning through its sudden middle until its sudden ending. Now, continuity of mindfulness has been mentioned already several times, and just to briefly restate that when our mindfulness is not quite continuous, then unwholesome mental states have a heyday, so to speak, in arising in the mind. And thus we really need to pay much attention to gradually developing this continuity of mindfulness. Now, in this certain connection, there is also the intensity of practice that matters, intensity and continuity, those two go together. And just like when you try to start a fire, let's say you don't have any matches around, you're somewhere in the wilderness and you have no gas lighter with you and you want to light a fire, then you might you know, want to rub you know, two sticks against each other and certainly you know, in you know, doing you know, so you know, some you know, or because of the friction you know, then heat certainly will arise and eventually you know, there will be a spark and certainly then you know, fire you know, will you know, you know, take place and in the mindfulness practice it's certainly the same you know, thing our mindfulness should have, our practice you know, should have a certain intensity you know, to it, which is uh, you know, also you know, continuous. And if we were to you know, try to, you know, well, ignite a fire, 
by rubbing for a little bit and certainly then by pausing to you know, daydream and then you know, by you know, continuing to you know, rub these two you know, sticks together, you know, then you know, we will probably you know, not certainly be very you know, successful. The same thing you know, goes for you know, the mindfulness you know, practice. So you know, when our mindfulness is somewhat uh, intermittent, somewhat discontinuous, you know, then uh, its overall strength is likely to be weak. Now, when we you know, practice, then you know, oftentimes we you know, approach our meditation with an attitude of I want to be in control of new things. And so then we may want to well manipulate our experiences to some extent. We want to make things happen in certain ways. And so in the world outside we might certainly succeed in doing so, but certainly in the Dhamma practice, this is not certainly really possible. And so if owing to, let's say, a certain development in our meditation and the intuitive insight, knowledge, pains are bound to arise, then they will arise whether we like it or not. And then even if we try to avoid these pains and try to make them go away, they will not necessarily go away and persist instead. And so when we practice, it's certainly important to remember the aspect of anatta. This very much applies to the meditation as a whole and our attitude towards practice. So just to go with whatever happens in an accepting manner and basically all we need to do is just to be a neutral observer, an objective witness. Just we need to be just like a researcher who carries out an experiment and does interfere with the experiment or not. Peter, what do you think? Not to interfere, obviously, not. And if one were to interfere with the experiment, then it's not going to be an untainted experiment. So some of the qualities that our mindfulness should possess are thus well, a non, the non-superficiality, then mindfulness should 
um, you know, keep or we should keep you know, the respective object certainly in view, and certainly then you know, we want to you know, be face to face certainly with the respective object. We want to you know, then uh, also you know, ensure you know, that as soon as an object arises, immediately you know, our observing mind is certainly you know, with you know, the object, and so and then. And also, you know, concurrence that need to be you know, there, and that extraordinary mindfulness is that needed. You know, we need to rush and plunge into you know, the respective object. We need to firmly grasp, but you know, the object cover it you know, completely. And certainly then uh, also we need to ensure again and again that our mindfulness is certainly continuous. And and then we need to cooperate with our own practice by you know, trying by you know, trying not to you know, interfere you know, by you know, trying not to alter our you know, experiences. Now, the venerable Analayo in his certain book, Satipatthana, the direct certain path to Nibbana, based on a number of passages from the text, especially from the suttas, points out a few other qualities that mindfulness ideally should certainly possess. And certainly, so in the Anguttara Nikaya, as well as certainly the mm, you know, Theragata to you know, verses certainly there, mm, mindfulness is said you know, that you know, is said that it should give full and continuous attention to a matter. So when an object has arisen, then you want to give hundred percent of your attention to it. And it oftentimes happens, especially during the beginning days of the retreat, that a meditator observes an object that is already quite familiar, let's say some chronic pain, and since one has observed it already so many times, you know, you know, the mind then thinks, oh, well, um, you know, it's the same old certain experience, nothing new there, and so I might as well you know, spend my time you know, you know, thinking. And so, you know, so then about 50% you know, of our attention goes you know, to you know, that chronic you know, uh, and so, you know, boring pain, and so, you know, then you know, the other 50% of our attention you know, goes so, you know, to you know, the thinking. And this is so, you know, not certainly so, giving full and continuous attention to an object. So if a predominant object that has arisen you know, and so, you know, you've chosen to you know, be with it, and then be with it you know, wholeheartedly and certainly in a full and certain continuous manner. Now, mindfulness has a great certain number of you know, different you know, qualities certain to it. 
more than most people assume, and one of its qualities is that of monitoring and steering other mental factors. So this is more in a sense that not necessarily we can do something about it, it's just happening naturally. So this is said with regard to, to the five controlling faculties. The five controlling faculties consist of the controlling faculty of faith, of then effort, of mindfulness, and concentration, and wisdom. And so, out of those five controlling faculties, faith and wisdom form one pair, and then effort and concentration form the second pair. And each of these two pairs needs to be well balanced. And the mental factor that does the balancing job is mindfulness. And so it sees to it that when our Mind our our effort is certainly in excess. That we recognize this, that we become aware of it, and certainly then it leads to a decrease in effort or taking the effort back a little bit. When, on the other hand, we find that the concentration is in excess and the result of this is sleepiness, then again it's mindfulness that will be aware of the situation and then will help a meditator to decrease the concentration as is necessary. So in this certain sense, mindfulness does certainly play an important certain role. It is said, certainly, for instance, in you know, the fifth you know, in the volume of you know, the Samyutta Nikaya, you know, section you know, six, and this corresponds to the forty-fifth you know, collection, that mindfulness is certainly you know, the watchful you know, charioteer. Now, at the time of the Buddha, he lived, or he spent most of his years wandering across the plains of the sub-Indian continent. So he traveled in countries that are now known as India and Nepal. And at the Buddha's time, these areas or region was definitely an agri- mostly agricultural areas, except, of course, for the towns. Now, what the Buddha witnessed over 2,500 years ago 
to some extent can still you know, be experienced in you know, uh, modern Nepal and parts of you know, India in the countryside. For instance, you know, when you drive you know, from you know, uh, the Indian Nepalese border, Sonoli, you know, to you know, the next larger town of Bairua, and then from there, it's another about you know, maybe 18, 19 kilometers or so you know, to Lumbini, then you will come through you know, a very or very strongly agricultural area. And so until now, you, you will still see a few villages along the road with partially mud houses, but also some more modern buildings. And suddenly people being engaged in uh, agriculture, keeping uh, cattle and growing uh, various uh, um, crops on uh, their uh, fields. And so, uh, then in uh, Lumbini itself, uh, during uh, the hot season, until uh, this uh, very uh, present day, uh, you can on occasion uh, see cow herds mm, uh, during the heat of uh, the day resting underneath a tree, in the shade of a tree, and then watching over uh, there. Uh, over their cattle, the cattle that are uh, grazing uh, in you know, the Lumbini uh, area. And all mm, such a cowherd you know, needs to do is, is you know, to you know, assure you know, that you know, the right number of uh, you know, cattle are you know, present. And so, you know, this then doesn't take you know, too much uh, um, input or too much uh, uh, concern. And so, you know, so at the time of the Buddha, it was just you know, like this. And <coughs> the Buddha you know, says, you know, when we observe our you know, predominant you know, objects, then... <coughs> Uh, sorry, we should do so with a calm and satna detached satna manner, just satna like this cow herd uh, under you know, or in the shade of a tree, you know, guarding over uh, his satna cattle. So there's no need you know, to become overly worried certainly about certainly something, but certainly rather you know, just to you know, step back and certainly then in a calm and cool manner observe certainly what is certainly going on. Now, in the third volume of uh, the Diganikaya, section 269, the Buddha speaks of one guard. How has one established the one guard? And the answer given to this is by guarding one's mind with mindfulness. 
And so, you know, there's a discourse in you know, the Samyutta you know, Nikaya you know, 48, you know, you know, Sutta 56, which kind of uh, echoes you know, this you know, aspect. Namely, you know, there it says, uh, when a retreatant is established in one thing, the five faculties are you know, developed, well developed in him or her in what certain you know, one thing, namely diligence or vigilance. And certain you know, this certain you know, then uh, is a synonym you know, for mindfulness. And what is certain you know, diligence? Here a meditator guards certain you know, the mind against you know, the taints and against tainted states. While one is guarding the mind, thus the faculty of faith goes to fulfillment by development, and then the same thing goes for the faculty of energy, of mindfulness, of concentration, and of wisdom. It is in this way that when one is established in one thing, that the five faculties are developed well developed in oneself. So in essence, it all boils down to just this mindfulness. Mindfulness is useful everywhere is another statement of the Buddha. Now, when it comes to the observation of difficult mental states, let's say some fear has arisen in the stream of consciousness, and suddenly then the fear gets stronger and stronger, and suddenly it's then well might even get out of control. Then the obvious reaction would be to interfere with it right away. And the Buddha did not encourage this, and he speaks, in, as is recorded in Itiwutaka 33, as follows, namely, there should be at first a stage of observation and then only a second stage of taking action. So this then applied to our mindful to our case of fear means that when the fear first arises, we observe it in a neutral manner, in a non-interfering manner. We you know, try to know what it's all about. And suddenly then only if the fear really gets out of hand, this is then you know, where we start to interfere and suddenly then maybe apply other ways of dealing with it. And certainly this same principle then also can be found in or, or with regard to two. Now the third contemplation of mind or establishment of mindfulness, namely citta nupasna satipatana. So there too we do not certainly want to um, right away interfere with certain objects.
Now, attitudes towards uh, certain difficult mental states like uh, anger, just to pick an example, have, have changed over the last few generations. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression is that the generation of our grandparents, in the case of anger, would certainly commonly do what? Act on it? Ah, suppress it. There you go. And certainly, so back then, the motto was, don't show your anger. And, so, and then when it comes to you know, certain schools of you know, modern you know, psychology, uh, the anger arises, and certainly then you know, a psychologist you know, would certainly recommend you know, to you know, um, his or her client to do what? Ah, and uh, well, act on it and uh, express it, uh, express it uh, fully. And so uh, there are uh, certain schools uh, that uh, recommend uh, things such as uh, such as what? Well, it, pardon me. Ah, punching pillows, that's certainly exactly <laughs> it. And so, if I'm not mistaken, there's also one school that says, well, if you feel really angry, then yell and just let it out. Well, if we were to do this during an intensive retreat, let's say, <laughs> let's say in this very... Noble Meditation Hall. Now then, then, would you think this would be quite appropriate or not? Well, it's not. And the approach of our grandparents, namely to suppress the anger, also would not be quite appropriate. So please see. Um, see how the Buddha chose to, to opt neither for suppression nor for expressing an unwholesome mental state like anger, but rather he recommended just keeping or staying to, to mindfulness, staying with mindfulness, of simply observing whatever predominant object is coming up. Now, this is actually a rather gentle approach. It's nothing, it's not an extreme approach at all. And so, one might certainly wonder if one is not well familiar with Vipassana meditation as yet, how can this approach, such a gentle and soft approach, ever bring some good results? But the results are there. And so, it is a very gentle yet powerful force. If you keep at certainly this mindful observation of predominant objects, 
over a longer period of time, over, let's say, several days, several weeks, maybe even several months, then profound changes can take place in our mind and certain unwholesome mental states might be even eradicated, uprooted from the stream of consciousness once and forever. Not necessarily the anger, but certain things such as the wrongful belief in the existence of a self and then skeptical down and again another wrongful belief that engaging in rites and rituals will bring about liberation. Now, Bante Guna Ratna, a Sri Lankan monastic and Satna scholar who lives in or who lives at the Bhavana Society in West Virginia. In his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, he points out that our mindfulness should be of a non-conceptual type. And he is making a really good point here. And so, see, as meditators, as we go along, we read about mindfulness practice, we discuss this with others, and we listen to various Dhamma talks. So there's quite a lot of knowledge that is floating around and that we're having access to. And with this, then also comes some knowledge about certain meditation experiences. One hears this, one hears that, various, various things. And when one then goes into an intensive retreat while observing an object like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, one might remember what others have described as being a very you know, highly advanced experience, like seeing formations in a, or seeing the vibratory quality in formations. And then when our meditator observes the rising and falling, then it's he or she sees it as, let's say, a field of vibrations. And this is sometimes certain overdoing it. One is basically taking a concept and that is not one's own, and certainly then it one puts it on the experience and sees the experience in the light of one's certain formed certain concept. And this interferes with an actual with the actual observation of what is going on. So what we need is just to bear attention brought to every single predominant object. Now, the same venerable Ratna also points out, and this 
by now should be quite certain or obvious for you what we need is a present time awareness so we're not concerned or much concerned with the future we're not much concerned with objects of the past but rather those objects that are happening right now and this connection meditator a foreign meditator who practiced at the center in Lumbini once shared that one way of ensuring for herself that she would be really mindful from moment to moment would be to ask herself um, and what is happening now? What am I knowing now and now and now and now? And so if you do this once in a while in your, if you apply this to your own practice for, let's say, half an hour or an hour, and you really make sure that, and you check for yourself whether you're really on the object or not, and suddenly you're really knowing something about it or not, it suddenly will galvanize your practice tremendously. Now, Venerable Gunaratana also points out, and I've mentioned this already at the very outset of our retreat during the welcome talk, where we spoke about aims or objectives for practice, that when we do the practice, we, in the far distance, we have a certain aim and we incline the mind towards it. But then you know, when we actually do you know, the practice, this is not relevant. And certainly we you know, don't practice with a goal-oriented uh, 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 attitude or uh, goal-oriented uh, goal uh, awareness. Now, Bhante Gunaratna also suggests in the same book of mindfulness in plain English that when we observe a certain object, then we don't add anything to it and we also don't subtract anything from it. So we just observe it for or as it is according to reality. Now, the Venerable Sadhupanita Nabiwamsa of Burma, when he speaks about mindfulness, he likes to point out that mindfulness performs a double function. Namely, it serves as a prevention for the arising of unwholesome mental states, and suddenly then, if owing to a lapse in one's mindfulness, some unwholesome mental state has arisen, then it is the same mindfulness that also serves as the cure. 
So your mindfulness is like an, a medication that certainly can be you know, used for preventive measures and certainly that can also you know, be used certainly to actually you know, cure a disease that has certainly already uh, taken place. Now, this much in you know, terms of uh, the you know, many you know, different qualities or you know, aspects of you know, mindfulness, and probably you know, if uh, you know, we were to you know, look around some more, you know, we could certainly even find uh, you know, some further you know, qualities. Now, if you compare what has been mentioned in the course of this Dhamma talk, and then you compare this to the five qualities that were mentioned by that one study on mindfulness, which in turn made use of other studies, and that qualified mindfulness as being non-reactive, non-reactivity towards inner experiences, and then observing and noticing, being present with sensations, thoughts, and feelings. And then the third point being being conscious of whatever happens and not acting in a in an autopilot certain manner, so an automatic manner, and certainly then describing experiences with words, and finally not to judge one's own experiences, then it becomes quite obvious that certainly there's so many other qualities around, and so. Let me, uh, or allow me to uh, conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk by uh, wishing may uh, your mindfulness ideally uh, possess all uh, those Satna many uh, qualities Satna that uh, have been uh, mentioned and so. Uh, if one or the other aspect is still not fully developed, then pay attention to this, and then gradually make your mindfulness become a powerful, controlling faculty, and together with the other four controlling faculties, may it contribute to the realization uh, of uh, Nibbana through um, uh, the attainment of path, noble path consciousness and certain fruition consciousness. And may it, uh, this happen either uh, during this uh, very retreat uh, here at uh, the Forest Refuge or uh, some uh, retreat in uh, the near future. And this is it. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.